Grammar Girl here. I'm Mignon Fogarty, and this week I have a quick and dirty tip about the word etc., a tidbit about the phrase short shrift, and a meaty middle about why you can't take prepositions literally. Yes, I'm mixing up the order and putting the meaty middle last. It's like dogs and cats living together. I don't know what's come over me, but you've been warned. And now, on to the quick and dirty tip about the word etc. First, as you already heard, it's pronounced etc. with a T sound, not etc. with an X sound. In fact, it comes from Latin and was originally written as two words, et and cetera, which translates to and the others. These days, it's abbreviated etc., but what made me think of this topic is that in the old days, it was abbreviated with an ampersand followed by a C, with the ampersand representing the and part of and the others, or the et part. That's how it was written on the title page of the book The Doctor, Etc. that I mentioned in last week's show because it has the original Goldilocks story. I have a screenshot of it on the transcript of this show at quickanddirtytips.com so you can see it if you want to. So, your quick and dirty tip is to remember to pronounce it with a T, etc. And when you see it written as ampersand C, you know you're looking at a document that's probably at least 100 years old, or a document that's trying to use old-fashioned language. Next, I have a tidbit about the phrase short shrift. Has anyone ever given you the short shrift? If so, it probably didn't feel good. When you get the short shrift, you're treated unsympathetically. You get cursory attention and little time. Say you want to impress the judges at the science fair, but they walk right past your display. You just got the short shrift. Or say you're talking to your boss about your new ideas, but she cuts you off mid-sentence and walks away. You got the short shrift, too. But what's the shrift, and why is it short? The answer is more gruesome than you may think. A shrift is the penance a priest gives you after confession. For example, he might ask you to recite three Hail Marys or say the rosary. A short shrift is a little more extreme. It refers to the short time a prisoner is given for confession before he's executed. You don't want that kind of shrift. The Oxford English Dictionary reports that this phrase, like so many others, is first found in the works of Shakespeare. Scholars are starting to believe that a lot of words and phrases attributed to Shakespeare were already in use during his day, but for now, Shakespeare is the earliest source we have. In Richard III, Shakespeare depicts the bloody rise to power of King Richard III of England. The villain climbs his way to the throne atop a slew of murders and executions. One of his victims, Lord Hastings, is arrested and receives this warning. Dispatch, my lord. The duke would be at dinner. Make a short shrift. He longs to see your head. Hastings responds thusly. Come, lead me to the block. Bear him my head. They smile at me that shortly shall be dead. If you're ever given the short shrift, I hope it doesn't end as badly for you as it did for Hastings. And that's your tidbit for today. To get the short shrift means to be treated curtly and without much care. That segment was written by Samantha Enslin, who runs Dragonfly Editorial. 
You can find her at dragonflyeditorial.com or on Twitter as dragonflyedit. Hey, it's Mignon. If you want to do more to hone your communication skills, then check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by the Stanford Graduate School of Business and hosted by my friend and Stanford lecturer, Matt Abrahams. You may remember Matt from his interview on the show back in September when he shared his top tips for becoming a better writer and speaker. Think Fast, Talk Smart is his Webby award-winning podcast, which has been downloaded 41 million times and has been the number one career podcast in more than 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Whether you're making a wedding toast or presenting at work, strong speaking skills are critical to success in business and in life which is why Matt sits down with experts every week to talk about the best tips to unlock your communication potential. Hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, speechwriter and best-selling author Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. So what are you waiting for? Listen to Think Fast, Talk Smart, every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. And tell Matt I said hi. And now, on to prepositions. Recently, we talked about whether to use the preposition by or on before the word accident, by accident or on accident. And we discovered that sometimes the preposition that people use is based on how old they are or maybe where they live. There are some interesting comments below that article about preposition choice rules, such as the one from Charles M. from Utah, who wrote, quote, You're in bed when you're under the covers, otherwise you're on the bed. You suffer with a friend who suffers from, because of, a disease, unquote. And, quote, Let errors be errors, please, unquote, wrote Carrie C. from Canada. Reader Marge O. from Texas, on the other hand, once commented, quote, In trying to learn French and Spanish, I found the prepositions the biggest stumbling blocks, and they're behind most of the errors I hear when a non-native speaks English, unquote. Boy, is she right. The truth is that although many people feel that prepositions should be used logically, they seldom are. Instead, they're memorized and used uniformly by convention in arbitrary ways. While in math, we can pretty much learn to add 5 to a number and then extend that addition process to other numbers, languages have a lot of exceptions, and they change over time. In fact, English years ago had far fewer prepositions to begin with and expressed word relationships by changing the word endings instead. The part of speech we call a preposition refers to words that are often small and indicate spatial and temporal relationships, location and time, between other words. Some examples we use a lot in English are with, to, for, around, about, and on. Some temporal prepositions can also serve as adverbs, which makes sense because adverbs often modify verbs, and verbs are often actions with a time component. For example, in the sentence, Jen ran around the building, around is a preposition, and the building is the object of the preposition. 
around indicates the relationship between the running action and the building. However, in the sentence, Jen runs around all day, around is an adverb modifying the running action. It's also called a particle in some contexts. So why can't we create rules about which preposition to use? To understand this, let's talk more about arbitrariness, one of the most fundamental characteristics of all human languages. It works like this. The relationship between the form, the sound, and the meaning of a word is arbitrary. The word arbitrary means that the relationship is random, rather than chosen because of a particular reason or system. In contrast, an arrow-shaped symbol is non-arbitrary. It was chosen because it clearly looks like what it means, in any language, to point in a direction. Convention may have strengthened this association over time, but the general act of pointing to something is chosen for non-arbitrary reasons. The word apple, on the other hand, does not sound anything like what the sweet fruit with a core and a stem looks like or tastes like. Words possess meaning by convention only, and that's why you usually can't guess the meanings of words in another language you don't know. It's what makes languages different from each other. If languages weren't arbitrary, only one could exist. So how do speakers choose which word to use? Well, most of the time, in casual speech, we really don't choose. Knowing a word is complex, it means you know its pronunciation, its meaning, maybe how to spell it, and usually how to modify it. In English, that could mean how to make it plural if it's a noun, or how to put it in past tense if it's a verb. More than that, as a fluent speaker, you know what sorts of words may come before it and after it. For example, with apple, you know that the can come before it, but not after it. You know this unconsciously, especially if you learned English as a child. How about which preposition to use? Well, think of the preposition by in the expression by the way. It has no meaning at all, but when it comes before the way, Fluent English speakers know exactly what it means and how to use it. You also can't exchange it for some other preposition if you want to be understood. Expressions like that are often called collocations by linguists and language teachers. They're words that are used in a chunk to mean a certain thing, and they're used in the same order every time. That's why in English, fluent speakers know to say black and white in that order. However, in French, it's always the other way around, like this. Blanc et noir. We always say salt and pepper, and actually the French do too. Du sel et du poivre. Memorizing these ordered expressions can help learners of any language speak more fluently and be better understood. Prepositions are function words, which means they have a grammatical purpose, but not much meaning. Content words like dress and happiness have a lot more meaning and are easier to define. Yet, each preposition can have many different functions. For example, to teach an English learner what in and on mean, you could draw a box and put a dot inside it and a dot above it to illustrate the concepts. 
But can you always use in for that meaning? Not at all. Sometimes the preposition inside works better or sounds more natural. And sometimes both are equal. You can say, come inside, it's cold. Or, come in, it's cold, with no penalty. And metaphorical uses are even more difficult to predict, such as the in in Frank arrived just in time. Yet we can also say Frank arrived on time. Also metaphorical is the in in the expression I'm in a bind, an abstract expression that means I feel stuck or unable to solve a certain problem. When we look at other languages to compare, a useful technique linguists apply to gain perspective when making decisions about a language, we find more excellent evidence for the fact that we can't apply logic to preposition choice. For example, the English prepositions at and to feel totally different to us, right? You may say that at is used when something already is somewhere, but to is used to indicate direction. Yet, in French, they're just one single preposition. However, don't draw the conclusion from this that English contains more subtlety than French. The opposite preposition mismatch exists, too. For example, French has two words for our preposition in. Dans. En. One is used more for physical space, like I'm in the kitchen, and for future duration, like I'll be there in five minutes. J'arrive dans cinq minutes. And the other is used for past durations, like I read the article in five minutes. J'ai lu l'article en cinq minutes. It may seem more or less useful to have two separate words, but really no one has a problem speaking a language with only one in or only one to at. We understand each other by context and by using language as we've learned it's conventionally spoken. Plus, like our reader Marge noticed, this shows us one of the reasons learning a foreign language is difficult for adults. Prepositions don't translate directly into other languages with any regularity. So when we hear preposition varieties used by large groups of native speakers, we don't call them errors. As we saw in the article about by accident, on accident just feels right for some people, meaning that they've used it and heard it over the course of their lives. Now imagine if someone said, I did it for accident. That would be an error, something maybe someone learning English could say. It constitutes an error by linguists' standards because, for one thing, it's unclear what the speaker means exactly. For another, for accident is probably not a preposition-noun combo that any English speaker would say feels right. As a side note, for standardized writing, of course there are some rules we follow to be clear, consistent, and more or less formal. However, writing isn't the same as spontaneous speech, and that it's planned ahead of time and edited. In our earlier piece about talk to versus talk with, we noted that there's not a particular reason to choose the preposition with instead of the preposition to, following the word talk, talk to or talk with. Because the two doesn't literally mean the conversation is one-sided. So sometimes two different prepositions can be interchangeable in a sentence. In other words, you can take prepositions seriously, but don't take them too literally. 
The takeaway is this. When we hear a discrepancy over something like which preposition people use for which thing, using logic to choose one doesn't work. Because human language isn't always neat and even, and it changes over time and across regions. The right preposition is the one used by speakers. The one we have figured out over time will allow us to be understood. One preposition may feel like it would be more logical to us to use in certain expressions or with a certain verb, but as individuals, we really don't get to decide how living languages behave. How they behave is decided for us, unpredictably, over time, as the speech community talks and listens. Or, as linguist Jeffrey Pullum recently blogged, quote, You arrive at or in a place, not to a place. But you welcome someone to a place. That's just the way it is. Nobody guaranteed that languages would be easy or fair or logical or commonsensical. They are simply as they are. Deal with it. And that's deal with it. Deal to it and deal on it are ungrammatical. Don't complain to me. I didn't invent English. My job is simply to describe it. Unquote. That segment was written by Sayel Graves, who has two master's degrees in linguistics. You can read more about her at sayelgraves.com, S-Y-E-L-L-E-G-R-A-V-E-S.com. And those French pronunciations were her. Thanks for recording those, Sayel. And as an aside, this is me, Mignon's advice. I often will do a Google Ngram search to show English learners which prepositions in which phrases are most common in edited English. Finally, I have a quick shout-out to the people who told me where they listen. Tamed Cynic says he listens on GT Road. Robert listens at Fire Station 21. Valeria in Nashville listens while doing yard work. A reported listening on a flight from Australia to Taiwan. And Rob in the Netherlands says he listens while doing home duties and posted a picture of his lovely ironing board. Thanks again. I love hearing your stories and seeing your photos. I'm Mignon Fogarty, better known as Grammar Girl. You can find all my articles on quickanddirtytips.com, and I'm Grammar Girl with no spaces on Twitter and Facebook. Wherever you listen, please subscribe because it helps us with the algorithms. Algorithms. If the algorithms allow it, I'll be back next week. That's all. Thanks for listening.